Hello and welcome back to Force Material. My name's David Kushnan, I'm the Content Director at Leaders in Sport, and in this series, we're exploring some of the many stories at the intersection of sport, entertainment, lifestyle, and culture. This podcast is brought to you by Force, a collaboration between Leaders in Sport and Sports Business Journal, and in association with our founding partners, Constellation Brands and GMR Marketing. Force is a collection of social and content experiences, all designed to identify and unlock the areas where sport collides with entertainment, lifestyle and culture. It's full speed ahead now for our major event experience in New York. Force New York is set for Tuesday the 23rd and Wednesday the 24th of May at Chelsea Industrial Inn, New York City. If you'd like to find out more, please visit our website, 4-se.com, or head to Twitter and Instagram where you'll find us at 4SE underscore events. All sports fans have a favourite stadium. Perhaps it's that of your own team. Perhaps it's a symbol of your country. If you were to ask me, I'd probably say Centre Court at Wimbledon or maybe even MetLife Stadium in New York. But, as we'll get on to in a moment, if you were to ask someone in Italy 2,000 years ago, they'd probably say Rome is where the heart is. In this episode of the Force Material podcast, we're tackling the evolution of the stadium, beginning with one of the world's most famous multi-purpose venues, the Colosseum. What's the process for designing a stadium? How is the game day experience factored in? And how much has changed since ancient Rome? We'll speak to ancient historian Dr. Peter Greenfield and to Christopher Lee, the Managing Director of Europe, Middle East and Africa at Populous to help us find the answers. Now, full disclosure, when we were kicking around ideas for sports and entertainment stories to tell in this series of Force Material, my initial suggestion of an episode on the Colosseum wasn't entirely a serious one. And then we thought about it a little bit more, and actually we realised that the Colosseum might actually be the original sports entertainment story. So we've decided to go ahead and tell it. Thank you for listening, and hope you enjoy. Picture this. You wake up on game day filled with excitement. You make your way to the venue, taking longer than usual because the city is busy, bustling with people, all of whom have come to attend the game. You grab some food from a street food vendor just outside the stadium before heading in. It's a hot summer day, so the venue has put up awnings to shield the queue from the worst of the heat. But the line doesn't take long because everyone knows where they're going. They have a ticket that indicates their seat, what entrance they're using, and how much money they have will determine how good their seat is. I could be describing a game today, but what I'm actually talking about is a morning in the life of an ancient Roman attending a game at a Colosseum. So once you're there, it's obviously gonna have a lot of carnival sort of vibes. That's Peter Greenfield, ancient historian and classicist. That's to say she studies ancient languages as well as the history. Good for her. I couldn't do it. It's all Greek to me. 
for the last 10 years, I have been co-hosting the Partial Historians podcast with my colleague, Dr. Fiona Radford, where we try to bring a little bit of like academic history, but make it much more accessible for people who maybe didn't get the chance to study history to the depth that they would have liked. It's been 10 years. So that's intense <laughs> doing the podcast. And we're just about to publish our first book together as well, um, which is going to be about the Roman kings. So we're pretty excited about that. We asked Greenfield to put us in ancient Roman sandals to explain exactly what would happen on arrival at the venue. This Colosseum has 80 different entryways. And we think that 76 of those were publicly accessible entrances. So you had so many opportunities about how you could enter into the Colosseum. So chances are you would know well beforehand which archway you were going to enter into. They're all numbered, so that's very handy. And you would probably have some kind of ticket for that that you had pre-purchased. Or somebody had given to you as a gift. Who knows? Maybe you got lucky. Maybe you won it in a competition. Um, When you got there, It's not just a matter of finding the archway that you enter into, it's also being very aware of where you're going to have to sit once you get inside. We mentioned grabbing a spot of game day grub. For an ancient Roman though, what would be on the menu? All sorts of things. So particularly while these games are going on, there is a heightened supply of meat available. Uh, Roman street food lends itself to lots of things. Uh, They love their bread when they can get their grain. Um, Everybody talks about the fish sauce, which is quite pungent, but delicious if you've got the right sort of like training to appreciate it. What is this meat groom? It's so tasty. I don't know. I start from a shark. I see. So we're eating stolen sacrificial meat now. Right. So you've got your meat, you've got your bread, hold the fish sauce, and you've even got yourself a hot dog or a burger. Plenty of options. But despite these similarities, the Romans were a very different sort of people, and the Colosseum was quite a different type of venue. So what exactly took place at the Colosseum? How much has changed? And what does that say about the evolution of the sports venue, and of us as sports fans? the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health. What have the Romans ever done for us? Rome sweet Rome. To modern listeners, Italy is the home of the opera of the Carbonara and of the Negroni Spagliato. Oh, stunning. But before all of that, they pioneered the sports venue and the game day experience through the building of the Colosseum. Now, as someone born in the pre-internet era, I know a little something about being an ancient wonder of the world. That line, by the way, courtesy of Jade, our producer. But the Colosseum was something else entirely. What the Colosseum is, is it's kind of like two weirdly pieces of hemispheres shoved together to create this kind of oval-shaped arena where you can sit on all sides. So that's pretty exciting for the ancient world. They really got on board with this idea that biggest is best with this kind of structure. And it was built by the Flavian emperors. So often the Julio-Claudian emperors are the really famous ones. You've got your Nero's, your Caligula's, your Augustus's. 
But the dynasty that follows them is the dynasty that builds this structure. So there's lots of time in Roman history where it's not around and then all of a sudden it appears and it takes them about 10 years or so to put this structure together. 10 years is a long time, but as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. Now, while the Colosseum wasn't the first of its kind, it was by far the biggest and so open to much excitement and awe. The inspiration? It was actually all very Force-esque. Those ancient architects were looking at sport as entertainment. In Rome in particular, a lot of the previous ones were made of wood. So they're not structures that lasted and they were kind of erected temporarily as needed. Uh, We also see that something like the Flavian Amphitheatre, which is kind of what it was known more as in the ancient period, is really based on Greek structures. So there is a legacy of the way that the Greek theatres looked with their sort of oval facing onto the stage, that sort of theatre aspect being transported and reappropriated into ancient Rome in this new way to create this sort of rounded structure where you could have even more seating, more people being able to see the spectacles. The inaugural games at the Colosseum were hosted in 80 AD. Assuming Rome was built in 753 BC, as the Romans claimed, it's around eight centuries into Roman existence before the stadium opened. To put that into context, we're about that far away today from Genghis Khan founding the Mongol Empire or the signing of the Magna Carta. It's fair to say that it didn't look quite the same when it first opened. An earthquake in the 14th century caused the collapse of its south side, causing that signature uneven characteristic that tourists still see today. But how else would it have looked different? The other thing to remember about the Colosseum is like, Every building in Rome, it was painted. So the interiors were highly decorated with frescoes and stucco work. And this meant that it was a riot of color on the inside. So when you look at it now and you're kind of like, nah, some slabs of rock, the whole thing would have been really overwhelmingly gorgeous. So all of the upper tier archways that you can see from the outside had statues in them. In the very top level, there's these square little spaces that would have had bronze shields in them. The thing would have sparkled in the sun from the sort of colour play going on. And then when you get inside, it's like fresco work and painted and it's pretty deluxe as a building. The modern-day major arenas could just as easily be described as deluxe buildings too. Here's someone who designs them, Christopher Lee, Managing Director of EMEA at Populous, one of the world's largest architectural design practices. Well, I mean, when you look at the Colosseum, what a a phenomenal piece of architecture and engineering. And I guess in, in many ways, albeit a couple of thousand years difference, the basics are still very similar, you know the sight line, the human eye, the relationship to the spectacle, the focal point that you're working to, all remains unchanged. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Lee cites Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to be his favourite of the projects he's worked on at Populous, but there are plenty of options. Our practice is a global architecture and design practice that specialises in basically sports and entertainment venues. And so that's anything from 
Wembley stadiums or Yankee stadiums all the way through to you know, the latest net carbon zero arenas in Seattle at Climate Pledge. And then further on to, you know, putting on World Cups, putting on the Super Bowl, which we run every year, and through to the Olympics that we're currently working on in Paris and have done in London and 12 Olympic Games prior to that. The best stadium in London. Fantastic. When the crowd roared, it was like being home. In his career as an architect, Lee has worked on many different structures and types of building, but with projects such as stadiums, which really have the power to impact communities, there are myriad elements to take into account. I've always sort of seen architecture, hopefully, as, as a sort of alchemy of taking these sort of basic requirements. You know, obviously in a stadium, there's all the, the seating bowls and the sight lines and the geometry and the maths that go with that, and we can talk about that in a bit moment. But you know, crowd movement and flows and egress and cars, all of these quite base pieces, and how do you take them together and shape something that becomes gold is, is I think the real key. And that's why I think each project is slightly different. Obviously our clients have different aspirations and different desires. The club or the venue or the event has a different aspiration and the location has a, a different influence. But I think ultimately it's about taking all of these pieces, genuinely trying to understand both the club, the fans, the users, the context, the city or even the culture depending where we're working and producing something that's quite special but more importantly something that I think is absolutely bespoke and unique. Whilst there is a long list of factors to consider when working on each individual project, those basic pieces, as Lee puts it, are sometimes literally crucial building blocks. And the quote-unquote bowl shape that we see across modern stadia has been commonplace for millennia. The actual seating bowl and the environment when you get down to the whole the piece of designing stadiums, that's really what it's about and creating these incredible atmospheric cauldrons of excitement and this, this sort of idea of, you know, we talked about the basic geometry and the, the math behind designing seating bowls, like I said, hasn't really changed since the Colosseum. I think you can almost draw a really direct parallel between the way that stadiums are shaped today and the way that we see the Colosseum has been organized. Like it's a phenomenal structure that has really stood the test of time. And there is good reasons for that. It means that there are really pivotal key viewing positions, uh, but it also means that you can pack a lot of people in. So we think the Colosseum could sit about 50,000 people, which is not dissimilar to some modern stadiums today. Like it's not an inconsiderable stadium by any means. Now, while you did require a ticket to go to a game at the Coliseum, entry itself was free, considered a gift from the Imperials to the citizens of Rome. But what were Romans actually going to watch? Why did they go to watch it? How did the Roman audience differ from us? And how did their surroundings differ from ours? You're listening to Force Material. Back with the answers in a moment. Maximus Decimus Meridius. Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. 
in this life or the next. The word Colosseum is so often uttered in the same breath as the word gladiator, and it's true that there were swords, there were sandals, and yes, there was blood, men fighting to their deaths. But it wasn't all gladiators. The Colosseum was a multi-purpose venue. So what actually went on in there? Peter Greenfield. So the gladiatorial games are probably what the Colosseum is most famous for, and I think we can thank Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe for that, <laughs> which is fair enough. Um, I think Ridley Scott did a really good job in bringing the Colosseum to life. So I would never diss that film, and I would definitely encourage people to go to it to get that sense of what is going on in this space. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Those gladiatorial contests usually take place after lunch. So there is a time and place for that. And in the morning, you would have the animals more so. So this would be either animals against animals, animals against criminals, maybe animals against gladiators at certain points as well. So there's a whole roster of that. But gladiators are a really special class of entertainment, if you like, and it does become quite formalized as time goes on. But also with the Colosseum, when it was inaugurated, they did also have a sea battle where they filled it up with water and sailed ships around in what is known as sort of a a Normachia, uh, a mock sea battle, where they might sort of replicate a historical sea battle or, I don't know, just go, go for gold. Who knows? But it, it's pretty chaotic. There's a lot of things to see and enjoy. Now, while I told you earlier that tickets to the Colosseum were free, and I'm sure the ancient Romans were grateful, there wasn't an option to splurge a little more on a better seat. Simply put, if you were of a lower class and or lacked fashion sense, the worse your view was. There is a whole social stratification in ancient Rome that's visible, and that plays out in the structure of the Colosseum as well. So if you are in the senatorial class, you get to sit in the best seats in the house, and that's just standard. If you're an equestrian, you get to sit a little bit further away, so you're still possibly quite wealthy, uh, but you're not in that noble elite class, so you get second best seats. And then you've got the plebeians who are sort of sorted by the way that they dress. So you've got some wealthy plebeians, they'll probably have a better seat than the plebeians who are sort of in the dusty rags. Sitting in those faraway seats, squinting to see the goings-on and the gore, it would make you feel like a ripe pleb. But it wasn't just class that dictated where in the stadium you must sit. Seating was also organised by gender. So you've got the plebeians right up near the top, pretty far away, but even further away from the action in what we think was a wooden section at the very top of the Colosseum. The only women that that would be different for is imperial women. They would sit in the imperial box. There's a special section for them, even better than the senators. And then there's also a special seating section for the Vestal Virgins. So this set of priestesses that, for some reason, uh, and we're not really necessarily sure why, get a very special spot as well, quite close to the action. The Vestal Virgins, in case you were wondering, were the priestesses of Vesta, the goddess of the sacred hearth. And they may have had a special spot because these games were in part about the gods. So there's a sense that there is an, an honouring 
of the divine in this process. And each of the things killed in this arena sort of functions as a sacrifice of some kind. So for the Romans, there is almost nothing more important than their relationship with the gods. They have this concept of the Pax Deorum being in peace with the gods. And in order to do that, they have to constantly be monitoring the signs that the world is showing them about how the gods feel and to put on games of such a magnitude. Where you see some real differences is I don't know how much religiosity in a formal sense comes into the modern stadium experience. It fights like a man possessed. By the gods themselves. So there's three key differences for you. One, the higher your class, the better your viewing experience. Two, your experience is lessened by being a woman. And three, the games were viewed as something of a religious experience. In theory, this all shows that plenty has changed over time. But does it? If you equate class with money, which is easy enough to do, it is still essentially the same today. Not only can people with more money afford better seats, they can also afford better packages, better food, higher tiers of hospitality. And this idea of hospitality tiers was already present at the Colosseum. Oh yeah, like in terms of hospitality, you've definitely got people selling things inside the Colosseum. So I would imagine that would be structured as well to the budgets of the different areas. So there's no way that a senator is going to want to eat whatever rubbish is being sold to the plebs, I don't think. It's one of those markers of social class, which is not just visual, but it's also about what are you able to purchase. And, you know, the Romans are all about the visual of that. So I can't imagine that it would be the same you know, hot chips for everybody. There would be the fancy hot chips and then the really dud ones. (laughs) In short, the idea that the more money people have, the better seats they get to sit in is echoed in the layout of stadiums today, albeit far less formally. We even have a whole forced material episode on front row seats at sports events. Check the archive. Gender segregation in stadiums, however, is thankfully not quite so frequently practiced as it was in ancient Rome. The idea is that women aren't really supposed to be so involved in this kind of thing, or maybe not supposed to show so much appreciation, although we know that they did really like going and they certainly had a good time and they definitely had their favorite gladiators. So women are definitely interested in the spectacle, no doubt about it, but they are placed further away. On the flip side, when we talk about female women being spectators, women are not just spectators. We also have women gladiators as well. So I don't know how much gender allegiance people might have had in the ancient world, but there's definitely women in the arena as well as watching the action. But as we know, in all sorts of ways, the quest for gender equality in sport continues. It feels like women's sports are on the cusp of breaking through, but it felt like that in 1999 and now it's 2022. So what will it take for the future of women's sports to finally arrive. The final difference to tackle is that element of the divine. Now call us Ovid because we're about to wax a little poetic here and perhaps slightly sacrilegiously as well. Not that sport is a replacement for religion or that it serves the same purpose, but 
Both can be unifiers, both can be dividers, and both can bring out very singular emotive experiences. I mean, I have seen football crowds and they do seem pretty motivated by an inner spirit that might be, you know, a sense of the divine is happening. So I think if you're watching, I think my only comparison at the moment now would be football. If you're watching somebody kick an amazing goal and it's like goals are rare in in soccer, football, and when they happen and when they're done well, I think people feel a magic of the divine in those moments. And I think that is also what the Romans are feeling. Like this is a divine space in some respects for them. And here comes Hurst. He's got some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. It's four. Speaking of deities, as we know, there are fans that see their favourite athlete as something of a godlike figure. But of course, athletes are just people, as were gladiators. They even went to gladiator schools, not unlike a modern-day football academy, albeit slightly more bloodthirsty. So one of the things that happens with the Colosseum is that it's not too long after it's completed that gladiatorial schools pop up nearby. So architecturally, you've got the Colosseum, and then sort of just across the way, you'll have some of the premier gladiator schools have set up shop there as well. So it's really easy to get the gladiators across uh, for what essentially will be their fight performances. First rule, you get an instant kill on the red. Here, here. Always remember, go for the red first because if you don't, your opponent will. Gladiators might be slaves. Usually they would be highly trained though. And there is a certain benefit for the gladiators owners to keep them alive. And you develop cults of personality. You might compare it to like sort of professional wrestling in that sense where like people adopt characters and people start to place bets on their favorites and people are expecting a certain kind of performance from certain types of gladiators. Whether it's an Adonis-esque appearance, incredible skill set, or winning personality, the best gladiators knew how to draw in a crowd. Just like athletes are today, they were a promoter's dream. So much so that if called upon to decide whether a gladiator would be put to death, any sensible emperor would lean towards letting them live, and not just purely out of mercy. Uh, It's obviously more interesting to keep some of these people alive so they can continue to fight and continue to develop a reputation they obviously become a draw card for people wanting to come. And it's like, you know, you can imagine that there will be posters up around town being like, you know, so-and-so's fighting so-and-so. It's going to be really exciting. You want to be there to see this. It's going to happen on Thursday. So that sort of stuff is really built into sort of gladiatorial culture as well. When you look at the evolution of the venue from the Colosseum through to today, it seems that everything has changed, but ultimately not much actually has, from the shape of the stadium through to the game day experience and the marketing and eye for a story. For architects like those who designed and built the Colosseum, and also those like Christopher Lee, a stadium is not just a stadium. Each one should be wholly unique and a structure through which history, tradition and culture are ultimately interwoven. 
we're talking about Romans, Romans had this brilliant word called genius loci, which is this idea that all places have a spirit. And when I was a student in architecture, my lecturers were very big on this idea that this idea of genius loci and that you know, our architecture needs to respond to all of its sort of local context. And, and can you create a, a new venue where history and tradition and authenticity are part of it? I think that's really what I strive to create as an architect. Designing a sports venue has always been about creating an atmosphere, a feeling that's both universal and timeless. I think the sense of the spectacle that people are going for, like there is a real energy and vibe when you have that many people packed into a space. There's no doubt about it that crowds have a really particular uh, atmosphere that they generate with just having that sheer number of people present. And I think you can expect that same sort of level of excitement, that feverishness that comes from when something is really great that you're seeing to infect the crowd and to sort of buoy them along. So you can imagine that there will be singing, there will be cheering, there will be people getting themselves into a little bit of trouble. You know, there'll be somebody who does something funny on one side of the stadium that other people won't be able to figure out. This will be true at the Coliseum as well. Dr. Greenfield tells us the story of two gladiators, Priscus and Verus, as told by the poet Marshall, which illustrates how game day has always brought with it those exceptional and unforgettable moments. These two have been going at it hammer and tongs for hours in what is presumably the hot sun of the arena. But these two are so equally matched that by the time the day has really dragged on, neither of them have said that they want to give up. and. Ultimately, what the Emperor decides, and I'm assuming it would have to be Titus based on when Marshall is writing, what he does is he provides them both with what is called a wand. And this is releasing them from their slavery, essentially, setting them both free because they've fought so well and so hard for so long and there's no clear victor and there's nothing else to be done. These two men have earned their freedom, which is kind of an incredible moment for the people watching and for the gladiators themselves to get to this point. So I think that's, to me, that sort of sums up like the positive uh, within gladiator culture that you could get. For Christopher Lee, the opportunity to help facilitate special and emotive moments is what drew him to sports architecture in the first place. This idea of community is the bit that really hooked me this idea that you know that magic moment whether it's at a concert or in a football game or whatever where suddenly you feel connected to 50,000 people that just rarely happens in your life and being involved and being able to sculpt and craft the environment in which that happens absolutely captivated me so thinking about you know this relationship between our fans and each other between our fans and our players and what it's like to be a player in an environment like that is super special and really important if we can create great environments that are you know, atmospheric. Then the rest of that piece of experience becomes a lot easier if we see uh, an amazing sporting event or football event in an incredible environment. And that resonates whether you're a sports fan listening from London or NYC, from Lagos or from Shanghai. And if you're listening from Rome, that's even more fitting because, as it turns out, we are very much still doing as the Romans did.
You've been listening to Force Material, the podcast telling the stories of where sport meets entertainment, lifestyle and culture. Thank you very much to our guests this episode, Dr. Peter Greenfield and Christopher Lee. And do please join us next time as we explore another story.